0: Hey, I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 right now. And as you're, I won't be referring to it quite just yet, but it saves time. And as you are turning to Romans chapter 3, let me introduce our time together, our topic this morning in this way. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but again, statistics are somewhat, whatever, kind of general over, overalizations of different things. But one statistic that's out there is this, that an average adult makes 35,000 conscious decisions every single day. That's, to me, I thought that was kind of shocking or surprising. I'm like, 35,000 conscious decisions? That's not including the unconscious or impulsive decisions that we give very little or no thought to, right? These are the conscious decisions that we make every single day, and it's a variety of decisions, obviously. Uh, It's interesting, you know, part of those sub-statistics that were given was that even—this must be a Western statistic because in some places in the world, they don't think much about this or as often as we might do. But we, as the average American adult, think about food at least 226 times a day. What to eat, when to eat it, how to eat it, the manner in which you want to eat it, how you want to cook it. Thank you, Corey, a couple days ago for blessing my stomach. I look forward to the next one too, as well. Um, by the way, he's got—he's getting his smoking uh, uh, refined to a T. I love it. I love it. You know, what's interesting is one's responsibility grows in life, or depending on uh, what, what, what you do in life and your responsibility increases, so does the number of choices that you have to make decisions about, right? And of course, some of those decisions that we have to make decisions about uh, are, are a variety, but are also they kind of hold a lot of weight or significance. For example, uh, which career path you young people might choose for a living, or even if you're middle-aged going, I think I need to rethink my career path. Those are big decisions to make in life. We also might think about who I might potentially marry. Uh, did I get it, did I save enough for retirement potentially? Uh, what are the best parenting strategies? As an uncle, I was an amazing parent. Then I became a parent. And apparently I was not a great parent. But we think about those things that are very important to us. But let me ask you this question. Is there a decision that we must all make in life that trumps all other decisions? In the midst of 30, 30, 35,000 decisions we make consciously every single day, and I don't—I didn't do the math, but if you add that up over how many days you live, that's a lot of decisions that our mind is computing that we're, making, that we're trying to make good decisions about, hopefully. But is there a decision that all human beings must make in life that matters most than all the other decisions or choices we make? I believe there is. I believe there's a, a, a decision that trumps all other decisions that we must make in life. I believe that the most important issue of life that all human beings on the face of the earth, both histor- history past as well as future, they must make a conscious decision about is whether they are not whether or not they are right with God. The most important decision you will make in your life is whether or not you are right with God. It's really a, 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 an issue or really a question that I pose at every memorial that I, that I oversee. It's, I pose at the end of every sermon that I give this one question, are you right with God? Where is your standing with God? Are you at peace with God? Because this question forces us to grapple with our mortality. Alistair Begg said it really well. He says, there's nothing like the the prospect of our mortality, the prospect of death, to clarify the issues of life. When we are staring death in the face, it makes us, it forces us to take inventory of our lives, and specifically what it hopefully does is that we come to this place of going, am I really right with God? Where do I stand with God? Am I truly at peace with God? It's, some, it's an issue that every person must deal with this side of eternity. After all, one day we will all stand before God and give account for our life here on earth. Of course, this question, am I right with God, precludes the possibility That not everyone is right with God or that we may not be right with God. In fact, this is what Scripture teaches in Genesis chapter 3, right? The first two chapters of the Bible give us this kind of quick overview of like God created everything and everything that God created, it was good, it was perfect, it was as it was intended to be. And he also created this thing called the human race. Men and women created in the image of God, why? For the ultimate purpose to be in relationship with God. That's your design. That is what you were made to do, is to be in relationship, to walk and to talk and to be in intimate fellowship with Almighty Creator God. To live outside of that function is to live a life inconsistent with your design. And that is why you will always be wanting when we don't have that, that, that relationship with God does not exist. So, so far, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, everything is really good. Everything is perfect. And then in Genesis 3, everything gets sabotaged. You know the story. This other character comes on the scene. Adam and Eve have uninhibited fellowship with God. And then guess what happens? The, what we call Satan or Lucifer, also known as the accuser and the deceiver, He comes, he deceives, Adam and Eve fall into temptation, they sin, they rebel against God, and everything that was once perfect and that relationship that once existed with God was severed. It was, all of God's creation was corrupted, and that relationship that you and I were created for was severed because of the first sin of rebellion. Now we can no longer live as we were intended or created to live. And Paul reaffirms this, this rebellious status or this un, now this unrighteous status in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 when he says that there, nobody is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. You know, there's this idea culturally that says something along these lines. People are basically good and sometimes do bad things. If you look at Romans 3, I don't see that in here. No one is righteous. No one does good. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. Not even one. It's just like, oh, so This idea that people are relatively good, that sometimes do bad things, is unbiblical. It's simply not true. The Bible teaches that people are bad. That's why bad people do bad things. Good people do good things. The reason why we do bad things is because we are sinners in regard to God. And since the Bible is our ultimate authority on all matters of life and for godliness, and because it states very clearly that no one is right before God because of our sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, then the real question that you and I and all people have to come to grips with or grapple with is this, how can I be right with God? How can I, a sinner, be made acceptable, be at peace before a holy God? What does the Bible say about this crucial question? And now I read in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Now that you're already turned there, read along with me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation for this particular passage, and so it may look a little different than your translation. You can listen if you, just, if you so desire, but you can also read along with me. Starting in verse 20 of Romans chapter 3. Paul answers the question, how can we be made right with God? He says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin, People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Jesus. Can we boast, then, that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is, based, is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. To give you a quick overview of where Paul takes this argument. He goes to Romans chapter 4, and he gives Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people, as the prime example. He says, even Abraham was justified by faith. In other words, Abraham was not justified by his obedience. He was not justified because he somehow had this status that merited God's acceptance. He was justified by faith, just as all people are justified by faith. And so Paul goes to the next chapter in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we were to summarize what we have just where we have come so far or what the scriptures have taught us so far, we can summarize it in this way. Sinners are justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Sinners are justified or declared righteous. They're made right. They're accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. What this means is that from start to finish, a person is accepted by God apart from any good deed that they could do or have done. Their acceptance by God is fully dependent or solely dependent upon God's righteousness as he credits the righteousness of Christ onto the sinner. That's why one of the foundational doctrines of Protestant theology is is justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Just to give you a quick recap, we've been going through our membership series. We've gone through what is the church, and we've gone through a whole number of things. What is membership, Who, you know, the leadership structure, and then we eventually moved into uh, our statement of faith, we talked about the authority of Scripture. Pastor Mike or last week talked about the triunity or the Trinity, the Godhead, understanding who He is. This morning, we are discussing this massive and significant understanding of justification by faith alone. By the way, these are, uh, because I know sometimes this can be misleading uh, depending on who you talk to, but... These are non-negotiable tenets. To be a member of this church, there's no room or wiggle room for going, well, I kind of get it, or I kind of agree. We are unapologetic, and there's no room for reinterpretation. I'll put it that way. We are justified by faith alone. Now, there's some historical significance to this theological statement that we're justified by faith alone. The, the truth, uh, this truth was ultimately really what led to what we call the Protestant Reformation, right? To give you a little history lesson here, The Protestant Reformation happened just over 500 years ago, uh, and um, in its corruption, we see that the Catholic Church was encouraging all sorts of unbiblical and and damning ways that people could be made right with God. For example, they, they offered forgiveness of sins for a certain amount of money. And they also sold what we call indulgences at that time. Indulgences wasn't uh, forgiveness for the sins. It was after you were forgiven for your sins, then you could also pay money to, in a sense, alleviate or, or, or completely put aside any punishment. So even though you could be forgiven, you still had to pay the punishment, either in this life or in purgatory. And so you could pay money to kind of uh, remove that punishment. We also see that the papacy was growing richer and richer while the poor were growing poorer and poorer and as a catholic monk himself and in his response to this corruption martin luther classically known you know he hammered up the 95 theses or what we call disagreements that ultimately led to this departation from the catholic church now mind you you need to understand that martin luther was not seeking to break away from the catholic church he was a catholic monk all, in a sense, Christians were Catholic because Catholic means universal. So this is kind of the universal Christian church at the time, though it was going through many corruptions. And so Martin was going, hey, wait a second, time out. I have some issues with some of the things that are put forward. I have some issues with some of the practices and the things that are endorsed through the church that I do not see clearly laid out in Scripture. And so he handed up 95 disagreements that he had with the Catholic Church as a Catholic monk himself. The primary issue, however, that was at stake in his disagreement was this. How can people be made right with God? How can people be made right with God? And Luther himself was in desperate despair over his own salvation, you know, he was doing all the right things, and yet his heart was, no long, was not at peace. He was uncertain about his status with God until he stumbled upon Paul's words in Romans 1 verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Those six words was what broke through the torment and the confusion and the lack of peace in Luther's heart as he finally realized that his acceptance before God had nothing to do with what he did or his works or his good deeds or his religious devotion or any of those things, but was fully dependent upon God to make him acceptable. So as, as, as Luther grappled with this question, how can I be made right with God? The answer was, Luther, you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. Only God can make yourself right with God. And you receive that free gift through faith. That's it. And so the key departure for Luther then, at least from the Catholic Church, was not that the Catholic Church didn't affirm the importance of faith for salvation. No, they they teach that. Salvation is by faith. Through through faith we receive this gift of salvation. But the difference or the, the distinguishing factor From Protestantism and Catholicism, is this that the Catholic Church teaches that faith is needed to be accompanied by good works or good deeds. In other words, according to the Catholic Church, faith in Jesus Christ alone is not sufficient to make you right or justified before God. Yes, you must exert faith. But you must also perform good works to accompany that faith and then hopefully at some point in time you will be ultimately accepted by God. Please don't misunderstand my intent here when I say these things. I am not intending to bash Catholics um, or any religion for that matter because one of the distinguishing factors of all other faiths and religions out there is a works-based righteousness. Is a, it's a works-based approach to God. If somehow I have to do something, even if it's a little, little, little bit, I have to do something to make myself acceptable. And the gospel says, you can't. There is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. Only God can make you acceptable to God. And we receive that acceptance before God, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I love the songs that we were able to sing to this morning. Bringing it back to the cross, bringing it back to the blood, we'll have a moment at the end of service to, do, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Again, it comes back. all comes back to Jesus. He is the climax, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the epitome, the climax of the human race. All of God's redemptive fulfillment is, in a sense, put on display at the cross and what was accomplished through the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not here to bash other faiths or religions, but I am zealous for truth. And I do believe that we have an enemy who distorts and confuses the truth so that people have a false assurance of salvation when in fact they may still be dead in their sin. So as is often the case, the most loving thing I believe I can do or say is to confront lies and deception from the enemy with the truth of God's Word, because only then will blind eyes be given sight. Only then can the spiritually dead people be brought back to life. Only then can we be made right with God and be at peace with God and be assured of our salvation. We are justified by faith alone. This doctrine is a a fulcrum doctrine for the Christian faith, it is a difference between a biblical gospel and a false gospel. We are justified by faith alone, but I'm not going to presume that you fully understand what that means. So I want to bring some points of clarification, four points, in fact, of clarification or just a greater definition to what justification by faith alone means. The first point of clarification is this. God is the one who justifies sinners. God is the one who justifies sinners. Paul says in Romans 3.26 that God is both the just and the justifier. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul asks the question, it is God who justifies. I appreciate what John Murray says. He says the truth that God justifies really needs to be underlined. He says we do not justify ourselves. Justification is not our apology, nor is it the effect of any process of self-exaltation. It's not even our confession or good feeling that may be induced by our confession, Justification is not any religious exercise that we engage, no matter how noble it might be. If we are to understand justification and appropriate its grace, we must turn our thoughts to the action of God justifying the ungodly. God is the one who justifies the sinner. But what do we mean by justification? Again, sometimes we can have Christian terminology and, and we, can, we can kind of grasp and get a sense of it, but what do we mean when we use this term justification or, or that God is the one who justifies? Well, I believe it's helpful, and I actually believe it's biblically accurate to think of justification more on the uh, kind of as a legal term or a legal declaration. It's a forensic term. You might want to kind of envision in your mind kind of a, a court of law, right? Right, George? It's like... As a retired judge, he knows it all too well. You think of a court of law where the judge hands down a verdict to the defendant. Yet in this case, or in our case, the evidence points to our guilt. We're guilty before God, right? Romans 3 clearly establishes that. No one does good. We're all unrighteous. We are all gone astray. We're all rebellion. We're all dead in our sin, So the judge hands out the verdict and says, you are guilty in your sin. But here's the whole irony of all irony. Here's the whole twist in the story. In spite of our guilt, God, the judge, pronounces you innocent. Whoa. What? You know you're guilty. God knows you're guilty. And he says, you are innocent. So when we talk about justification by faith alone, and when the Bible teaches on this, that God is the one who justifies the sinner, what it means is that God pronounces and accepts and even treats you as a sinner, but innocent. He treats you, the sinner, as innocent, as if you never did anything wrong, even though you have. It's a declaration about you. Now, let me just kind of clarify something here, because what we're not saying is that God, by justifying the sinner that you are actually righteous, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. He's not saying God declares you righteous, therefore you are intrinsically or by essence now righteous. No. God is declaring that you are righteous, declaring that you're innocent and perfect, and then from that declaration about you, God initiates the process within you to actually make you righteous. Here's the old irony of it. God doesn't say, you're accepted before me if you can kind of reach a certain, you know, reach a certain bar, reach a certain standard. He says, no, I'm gonna declare you as if you already did reach the standard and now I'm actually gonna make it true of you. That's why we've said over and over again, God's number one goal for you is not to give you a happy life, to give you a comfortable life. God's number one goal for you is to transform your life, is to remake your life, He's declared you righteous. He's declared you innocent. All that is true of you, as if you were perfect and righteous before him, and now he's, going in the, now he's initiated this process of actually making it true of your life. The irony of all ironies is that the way in which he most effectively carries out or, or effectively accomplishes that process in our life is through Suffering is through trials and struggles. That's God's means by which he is able to refine and remake us so that we might reflect him more fully, so that we might reflect his glory, that we, might, that we might be witnesses for him in the most effective way possible. I believe one glorious aspect about this truth, that God is the one who justifies us, is this, that when God declares us as righteous, that righteous declaration about us stands against every, any and every accusation brought against us. Isn't that incredible? When God says to you, you are innocent, it doesn't matter who, even if it's the ultimate enemy the accuser, and the liar, it doesn't matter if any he brings a charge against you. If God be before us, what does Paul say? Then who can be against us? So I find great comfort, and I find great peace, and I hope you do as well. Because when God says, you're innocent, you're free, you're clean, you're accepted. Even though we might conjure up or self-induce or even legitimately experience condemnation by others, guess what? God doesn't condemn you. It doesn't mean that we aren't at fault, and it doesn't mean that we don't need to still confess our sins when we sin against God. But when it comes to your moral and righteous standing before God, he says, you're clean and you're innocent. You're my child. I've adopted you. It's done. And no one can take you from the Father's hand. A question, as I think about this whole process of justification by faith alone, is how in the world can God fairly and justly declare sinners as righteous? I mean, it just seems kind of crazy. It's like, yeah, you're guilty, but we'll just call you innocent. It almost seems kind of like a dismissal of justice in some ways. And that brings us to our second point of clarification, that sinners are justified by faith in Christ's death on the cross. The way in which God can fairly and justly declare guilty sinners as righteous is is through faith in Christ's death on the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, the cross displays both the justice of God as well as the grace of God. We see both put on display. The justice of God is on display in that God punishes the sin that we have committed, the sin that we are guilty of. But it also puts God's grace on display in that he provides a substitute for our sin, I love that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's kind of the great exchange verse, right? Paul says, For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying in that verse is this. Basically, God put the sin, our guilt and our sin, onto Christ, and we received his righteous status. It's classically known as what's called imputation. Imputation. Where Jesus satisfied the demands of justice by his perfect obedience, and we got the status of his perfect obedience as if we were perfectly obedient. And then he also did, he satisfied the demands of justice by incurring on the, the sins of this world at the cross. And so, this great exchange is at play here. Jesus takes our sin, we take on his righteousness. And now we stand innocent and free and accepted and at peace with God. It's crazy when you think about it because we did nothing to deserve it. Now it's crucial that we recognize something. Again, there's all kinds of ways in which we can kind of go off these um, rabbit trails and and I would say unbiblical um, ideas or conclusions. It's crucial that we recognize that we are not saved by our faith. Faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. That's what saves you. Faith cannot pay for your sin. Only Jesus can pay for your sin. God is the one who saves, and faith is the means by which we receive God's salvation that's made possible through Jesus Christ. One pastor kind of put it this way, he says, faith is the hand that receives God's provision of Christ. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and faith is the means by which we receive God's provision of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. And this is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Now, this is really good news, by the way, for those who are trying harder because our salvation is not one bit on our ability or or our effort, but fully on God's ability and His effort and Christ's effort and His obedience at the cross. Not religion, not pious deeds, not sacrifice, not devotion, not anything can merit God's acceptance of you. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, Titus 3 says. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me me just make this very clear. Brothers and sisters, just listen to me for a moment. Because our flesh and its weakness and the insidious nature of of sin so wants to come back into this place of justifying ourselves. Read the book of Galatians. It's all about you were saved by grace. Why are you going back into a system of works? That's the whole point of that that whole letter written to the Galatian church. You see, our flesh always wants to move back into a place of, okay, maybe my salvation is dependent on God, but I still have to kind of keep in that place of acceptance somehow by my ability, Somehow I had to keep meriting God's acceptance of me in some way, shape, or form. But listen to this. You cannot be justified by God as long as you think you can earn his acceptance. You cannot be justified by God so long as you think that you can somehow earn his acceptance. There's nothing you can do Now, do good good deeds matter to God? Of course they do. God loves it when we live a life that is consistent with the faith that we profess. But we must understand that we are not saved by our deeds, we are saved to good deeds. Genuine faith produces good deeds, but good deeds do not produce genuine faith. You can see James chapter 2 for a more detailed explanation of that. Third point of clarification. Only sinners can be justified. You know, sometimes that word sinner, it resonates and sometimes has this kind of, ooh, why are we, could there could be a better term? A softer term? Can we just have something that's a little bit more uh, pleasing to the ears? It just seems so blunt. And it is, because that's what Scripture teaches. Only sinners can be justified. Before God. Paul says this in Romans 4, 5, the pe- people are counted as righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives, not good people, who forgives sinners. The only people that God justifies are sinners, the ungodly, and especially those who don't seek to justify themselves by their own deeds. You know the parable in Luke 18, right? The tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember that scene, right? They both walk up to the temple. The tax collector walks up to himself, and he prays this incredible prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, on the other hand, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven And he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, God doesn't justify everyone, He only justifies sinners. The fact is, we're all sinners. But until you come to that recognition that you are a sinner, and that you are in desperate need of God's grace and only God's grace, only then can you be justified before God. Only then can you be accepted before God. What does David say in Psalm 51? The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Jesus' first sermon in Matthew chapter 5, his ministry has just begun The first words out of his mouth are this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize that you are spiritually destitute before God, that you have nothing to offer to make yourself acceptable to him, that you are completely dependent on his ability to save you and nothing else. Jesus says, this is the person who is blessed. This is the person who goes down justified. This is the only kind of person who can be saved. Brothers and sisters, please understand that salvation is fully dependent on God and is not at all dependent on you. And by the way, that's incredible news because if our salvation was dependent upon us, we would never have full assurance that we'd ever done enough. Though you and I can have a hope, and the biblical definition of hope is not a hope of probability, but it is a hope of confident assurance that because God says this is true, then it is done. And we believe that Creator God is certain and trustworthy in all that He says. And the good news doesn't just stop there. This is my fourth and final point of clarification. Not only is it God who justifies the sinners, not only is it only for sinners that that can be accepted before God, but sinners are justified the instant they believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's not a process. It's not like, well, you know, let's give it a week and just see. We don't have any probation periods when it comes to salvation. Many of your jobs kind of have those probation periods. Let's see if this thing works out. God says when you come to, when you exercise faith in Him, the faith that He actually gives you, by the way, He saves you instantly. No process. The moment you recognize your full, that your full acceptance has nothing to do with yourself and is fully dependent on God, that is the moment you are saved. I had a friend when I was out living out in California. He said, when I asked him, how did you come to faith in Christ? God had already been working in his heart. He'd been wrestling and wrestling. He says, I walked in one day to a coffee shop, grabbed my latte, and I walked out saved. And I was like, wait a second. How in the world did you walk out? Wait, what, what just happened? He says, I was standing in line. I walked into this coffee shop. I've been wrestling. The Spirit of God had been working in my heart. I had no one, like much like Martin Luther, I had no certainty. I was just kind of distraught. And I walked out, and all of a sudden, just boom, the weight lifted. The shackles were torn off. And he says, I'm saved. I'm accepted before God. And he knew without any doubt or an absolute certainty that he was a child of the king. Because he realized it has nothing to do with what I have to do. It's everything that did, it has everything to do with what God already did. You see, when Jesus declared, it is finished, he wasn't just saying he was about to die. When Jesus declared, it is finished, he was declaring that the wrath of God for our sin was satisfied. It was dealt with. And that salvation is available to all who would come to faith in him. What does Romans 10, 9 and 10 say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as I close our time here this morning, let me ask you this question once again are you right with God are you right with God and let me ask you a follow up question on what basis are you right with God what reason do you have to believe that you are right with God Please understand that we are only right with God. We are only accepted by God when we come to recognize that our only hope in life and death is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals eternal life. It is in that instant when we come to that recognition and we come to that place of dependence that we are instantly justified and accepted before God and you are adopted into His family. Nothing and no one else. It's all Christ. He did it all. We depend perfectly, we depend fully on His perfect obedience. All we have is Christ. That's it.